Today we're going to look at Acts chapter 4 together. Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to be, uh, verses 13 through 22. We'll be in Acts 4, 13 through 22, and you can go ahead and uh, be turning in your Bibles there. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there should be one in the uh, seat rack in front of you. Perhaps you can reach over and grab one of those. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that. We want that to be a blessing to you, whether it be here or at home. One of the things that uh, I've shown you guys a few times as we've been going through this book of Acts, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, and now we've reached uh, chapter 4, is sort of a roadmap of where this book will take us. Would you mind throwing that roadmap up there for what this thing will look like? So in the first five chapters, you're going to see that the Spirit is at work through the lives of the apostles in Jerusalem, um, which you see kind of represented by that little red circle down there. But the, the whole point of the book of Acts and the thesis statement is Acts 1, 8, where it says that God's people were going to go and be His witnesses not just in Jerusalem, but also in Judea, Samaria, which are the sort of the, the county-wide, like the area around them, the regions around them, but also to the end of the earth, which would be represented by Rome, which is exactly where this book ends up in Rome. And we know that the gospel did not only stay in Rome. It has reached literally the entire globe. But this is the roadmap of the book of Acts. And so as we're in the fourth chapter, we're still seeing that God is reaching the people in the region of Jerusalem. You know, when you go and look at the beginning of this book, Acts, you'll see it say something like the Acts of the Apostles. Just by itself, Acts is a weird uh, word, right? It's got to have some context. Well, the context is it's the Acts of the Apostles, Jesus' near followers, his, his best friends and those that he mentored and taught. But even better said, it's not just the Acts of the Apostles. If it's just the Acts of the Apostles, nothing's going to happen. I mean, it'll be like them waking up and, and eating breakfast, brushing their teeth and going to work and then go home if they brush their teeth. I don't know. I don't know anything about that. But that's that's not really impressive. The Acts of the Apostles are not impressive. However, that is not just the Acts of the Apostles, is it? It's the Acts of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the Apostles, through the lives of the Apostles. And the reason that is a very important caveat to include there is that if this is just a movement of men, it will not go even outside of Jerusalem, much less to Rome, and it will not cover the globe, but it's an act of God. We're talking about power today. We talked about power last time we were in this book. We talked about a power struggle, specifically between some of the religious leaders and God, who will not be matched. It's not much of a struggle, right? God will not be matched in power, and so his movement goes forward. But today, we're going to look at sort of how the power of God's Spirit surges in the early church, and not just in the early church, but also in his people today. God's power is not just surging then. It is still surging now, and he is surging in his people to impact others, but also the power of God is surging in us to grow us and expand us. For what purpose? And that is the theme of the entire book that we've been looking at. That is that the gospel and God's namesake would go forward. The movement of God will ever move forward. So let's see this in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. Acts 4, 13 through 22 says this. <clears throat> now, when they that's the religious leaders, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had com commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For, what a notable, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further, that's laughable, right? That it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. 
But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Heightens the miracle. That's why that's there. A bit of background. We just read that verse about the man that the healing was performed in. And if you haven't been with us for the last several weeks and weren't here, maybe when we went through chapter 3, that's missing some context. The context is that Peter and John were at the temple grounds, and they were preaching. And specifically, they saw a man who had been lame from birth, unable to walk from birth. We now know that he's 40 years old. We see this in verse 22 here. And they heal this guy. And they say, in the name and the power of Jesus Get up and walk. We're going to give you that ability. And again, very important is not just rise and walk. The most important words are in the name of Jesus, in his authority, in his power. And so they are preaching not just that God can heal legs, but right after that they start talking about the resurrection and that Jesus is raised from the dead, even though the religious leaders had crucified him. And the whole point of that is to say that resurrection power is now among them. And this guy's legs suddenly being healed is evidence of that. That if you think healing legs is impressive, just wait until you see the healing that God is doing in hearts. So Peter and John, preaching about the resurrection, are then arrested. They're arrested by these guys called the Sadducees, mainly, but it's the Sanhedrin in total. The Sadducees, theologically, did not believe in the resurrection. And so they go and arrest these guys. But to be honest with you, it's kind of messed up because it wasn't a crime to be talking about the resurrection. And they're starting to realize that when they can't charge them with anything. But what they're preaching is that this life is not the only one that we've got. There's another life that is to come, and we live for that life. But the Sadducees did not think that. They said, this is it. This is the only life that we've got. And so you would think then that during the trial of Peter and John, they would say, hey, you got to chill out with all this resurrection talk. You can't be teaching that. But that's not what they come at. They don't come at that. Instead, during that trial, their question is not to their teaching, but to their power. The name in which that power is being occurring. What really is the problem is what Pastor Chris mentioned just a moment ago, and that's that God's people, are, or, the, or rather that God's apostles, are siphoning followers from these religious leaders. You know what siphoning is, right? It's when your, kind of, uh, your amount goes lower and somebody else goes higher. It's what's happening right now in the transfer portal to all of Alabama's football players. We're losing everybody, and everybody else is gaining everybody. And to be honest, I don't want to talk about it. You're thinking, well, why'd you bring it up now? Because I can't help it. This is what a siphon is. It's when someone loses and someone else gains. And these guys are really ticked off because this other movement is gaining a lot of people and a lot of momentum. And it means that they are losing to them everything. Because to the Sadducees, their influence in this life was everything. And if they ain't got it here, they just ain't got it. And so they are really upset about this. Their power is being attacked. Their position among men is everything. And as much as they'd like to squash this new movement before it becomes a threat to their authority, here's the problem for them, is that Peter and John technically have not broken any laws. Well, that poses a problem, doesn't it? The situation is that the Sanhedrin, which was sort of the Jewish Supreme Court, we'll talk about them more in a moment, this Jewish Supreme Court called the Sanhedrin is confused. They're perplexed because here's the problem. These two nobodies have healed a lame man claiming that the miracle occurred in the power of a man that they just killed. How's it going to happen in his power if he's dead? And the other problem is that they can't produce a body. 
And so there's really this layered conflict that's arising. It's a lot more to it than maybe meets the eye. And what we're going to see this week is that God's power doesn't just give the lame man healing. God's power also grants supernatural boldness to Jesus' followers and his messengers. And the result of that, which we have been talking about this morning through song, we just read it, is the praise of God. So as God's power surges in us, it produces a couple of things. And those are the two things that you're going to see on the screen behind me this morning. Number one, God's power surging in us produces boldness through the source of our change. Boldness through the source of our change. Again, the source being the Spirit of God. And that's why I want to emphasize the latter part of that little phrase there, the source of our change. Look with me at verse 13. It says, now, <clears throat> when they saw the boldness, emphasize that word, okay, the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. See, this is what's happening, is that God's power, the power of God's spirit grants boldness to God's messengers. The Greek word for boldness is one that you see, I think, five times in the book of Acts. And almost every, well, really every time that you see it, you see that it's the spirit of God producing that boldness. It's going to occur again, by the way, at the end of this chapter, directly attributed to the spirit of God. At the end of the book of Acts, it's going to occur when Paul talks about, even though he's imprisoned in Rome and about to face Caesar, he's got so much boldness because God's spirit has placed it within him. Literally, maybe for us, I guess contextually translated, this word, what it looks like is uh, Parisian is what it looks like. But what it really means is it's a freedom of speech, but not so much in the sense that we understand that. Not like I can say whatever I want. No, this freedom of speech is sort of a confidence to say whatever must be said, not just what can be said, but the freedom to say what must be said regardless of the consequences. In fact, in their context, this same word, Parisian, it would be applied to philosophers. It would describe these unashamed speakers who went against public opinion in the name of the truth. This is still occurring today, that you may have the mob, the, the culture mob on one side that says, you can't say that, you can't say that, but confidence, this word boldness, is to say, whether it's okay with you is irrelevant, I must say what is true. This has a lot of relevancy, what we're, we're going to land on towards the end of our time. But it says that they were astonished. They looked at them and they were blown away with the way that these guys were talking. Why? Well, there's two words here that it, it hits on. One, it says that they were uneducated, right here in verse 13. It says they were uneducated. It also says that they were common men. And I, I hate to, I don't like to dig real deep into the original language and, and the Greek because I don't really think you care necessarily, but I do think that sometimes it's important to understand these terms. These two terms are unique because what they mean are, it's, it's literally the opposite of grammar. It's, it looks like a grammar. So it's like atypical, something that's not typical. This is a grammar to say they're not grammar. They, they're not educated. They know nothing. They've never been taught anything. And they're blown away because of the way that they are teaching and the power with which they are performing these miracles suddenly. The other word is they're common men. Uh, the Greek word looks like the word idiot. It's, it's idiot with an ES on the end is what it looks like. What they're saying is not, it's not, a, it's not an insult. It's saying they're the opposite of intelligent, right? They're the opposite of intelligent. So they're astonished because there's these two guys that were not trained. They, have no, they, they haven't been taught anything. And now they're also seen as stupid. They're seen as unintelligent. And so together, why is that important? Those words mean that Peter and John had no formal training as speakers or from Jewish rabbis, 
their rabbi Jesus had no formal education to speak of, and they jumped on him about that. And yet, they had the audacity, we'll put that in quotes, to place their rabbi at the center of the entire salvation story. That's astonishing. Even naming him the cornerstone of what God is building, which we looked at not long ago. You see, the funny thing is, and the ironic thing, is that they are uneducated. And they are common men. There's nothing spectacular about these two uneducated fishermen. And that's the point. Their boldness is in them, but it is not from them. Their boldness is in them, but it is not from them. It is from God's Spirit working through them and within them. You see, what's happening here is that God's power is glorified in this contrast. You have people that are down here, and yet they are suddenly way up here. What is coming in between there? God's coming between there. God is the one that's working through these gods. God's power is glorified in the contrast. And on the opposite side, the other side of that coin, is that man's power is put to shame when God's power is glorified. This is what it means in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29. This should be on the screen behind me. And it says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What do you attribute this powerful work to? To uneducated common fishermen? No. And yet they're the ones doing it. It's God. You see, the apostles' authority, contrary to their culture, did not come from their education. Their authority did not come from their social status. Their authority did not come from their positions or whatever else you want to put in that blank. It came from the fact that they had been with Jesus. So verse 13 says, they had been with Jesus. That's what they recognized. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Guys, this is what being with Jesus does. God changes people. And if you're in Christ, he has changed you. That's what being with Jesus does. Apart from him, we are like them uneducated commoners. Apart from him, we have little to offer. We have nothing to stand on. Apart from him, we can make no significant difference in people's hearts and stories. Apart from him, no big difference can happen in our heart, in our stories. But in him, we are instruments in the hands of a mighty God bringing about real life change. But we are instruments at the end of the day. I was uh, sitting under the preaching of my uncle, Chip, not long ago, and he had an illustration that I thought was so wonderful in talking about uh, being an instrument in God's hands and knowing where the power comes from. He was talking about um, the fact that God must use us at the end of the day, and he used a, a work glove. I do own one of these. Some of you guys are mean to me. I just wanted to say, it actually has dirt on it. Brooke works in the garden a lot. Um, <clears throat> You know, uh, by itself, does this do anything? It doesn't do anything. I mean, uh, it's just going to just kind of sit there. If, if nothing happens to make this thing happen, does this thing rake leaves on its own? No. What other work happens? Uh, does, it, uh, does it dig holes? Uh, no. Look, this is just a glove. If there's nothing filling it, nothing occurs. But what happens when... Suddenly, it, it becomes pretty useful. In fact, I used this when I was in college when I worked, believe it or not. And 
with a hand in the glove, a lot can happen. I ran a lot of cables and wires using these gloves. I did a lot of heavy lifting with these gloves, manual labor with these gloves. But this glove, apart from a hand in it, it was just nothing. But with something in it, it suddenly becomes a tool. It becomes an instrument. And that's just the point. Peter and John are nothing. You and I are nothing. Unless God fills us. And suddenly, we become something. Suddenly, God can do much with what was simply an empty vessel. But when he fills us, he can accomplish much. But listen, for God's work to be at work in you, for his power to be at work within you, there are two things that you and I must do. And you could probably add a lot of things to this list. Number one, you have to be available. You have to be available to him. It's hard to be subject to his work if you're closed off to him. Do you make yourself available to God being at work in you, through you? Are you closed off from God? Perhaps are you closed off from people? It is hard to be subject to that work if you are sealed and shutting yourself away from him. It's also hard to be subject to his work if you aren't where God often moves in and on his people, like this. It's hard to be subject to God being at work if you're not in a space where God often is at work. Is he working this place sometimes, isn't he? He's at work when his people gather, isn't he? He's at work when his people find themselves on their knees, desperately calling out to him. He's at work when God's people open his word and say, God, I am empty, won't you fill me? He's at work whenever God's people lift their voices and sing their praises to him, and suddenly God imparts upon us a blessing. But you know what that is? That's availability. And if we are not making ourselves readily available to him, we, we, it's hard to be subject to his work if you are not making yourself available to the way in which he does work. This week, I've thought several times. I wasn't here last Sunday. I watched it Sunday afternoon on my drive home from Boonville. So many times this week, and then that afternoon while I was watching the service, I know it's not the same, but man, I was worshiping in the car with y'all, man. Not with y'all, because it was after y'all, but I was. I knew that it had to be an emotional room hearing some of the things that Carter talked about, because it was emotional in my car, and I wasn't even among the people of God. But you know what I was really thankful for? I was thankful that I listened to that service. Because you know what? That's making myself available to him. And this week, you know what I thought about a lot? That service. All because I made myself available to him. And he has so blessed my heart simply because I said, God, I'm here. Let's just see what happens whenever I make myself available to your work. Many of you made yourselves available to him last week, didn't you? But we aren't just to make ourselves available. We also need to be willing. For God's power to be at work within you, you have to be not just available, but be willing. You have to get out from under the umbrella if you want to get rained on. God wants to pour out his grace. He wants to pour out his favor. He wants to pour out a blessing. But if you've got a roof over your head, you're not going to receive that blessing. You've got to be willing and step out in faith. Psalm 51, verse 12. This is when David is so crushed because of his sin of adultery and murder and deceit and all kinds of lies. Psalm 51, verse 12 says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, which gets a lot of our attention. I think that's the great part of that verse. But I want to talk about the second part of that verse. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, he says, and uphold me with a willing spirit. You see, on the heels of failing mightily and praying for restored joy, you know what David knew? David knew that he would fail again if his spirit was not willing for God to move on and in his life. Not just be available, but say, God, I'm willing. 
do something. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, I think also captures this in a New Testament light. It says, in the second part of verse 12 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, which may be a little bit confusing. We don't have time to talk about that now, but I want you to see the next part. As you're working out that salvation, it says, verse 13, for it is God who works in you, listen, both to will, means desire, be willing, to will and to work for his good pleasure. What that means is if you want to be part of God producing a work in and through you, you must ask yourself, am I willing? Am I available? God, what can you do? What will you do? The first step of willingness is asking God to give it to you. Notice the second part of that verse in Philippians says, it is God who works in you both to will and to work. What that means is that the very desire, the very will comes from God. The will to honor him, the will to obey him, the will to be used by him, it comes from God. Here's what that means for us, is that you and I, again, powerless, right? But with God is in us, he can do much. Here's what that means, is that we say, God, I know that you are able to do far exceeding anything that I could ask or imagine, and I trust you, and I'm telling you now, I am willing, boldly, confident, knowing the source, God, will you move on me? Will you move in me? Because at the end of the day, we're just a shell if God's power has not filled us. Apart from him, we can do very little. But with him, there is no limit to what he can do. Whether it be to grow you, to will and work in you, or to be a blessing to those around you. As his power surges, it produces in us change and boldness through the source of our change. Speaking of boldness, let's, let's go back to the second one here. The second one is that boldness occurs regardless the cost of our obedience. As his power surges in us, it produces boldness regardless the cost of our obedience. Boldness regardless the cost of our obedience. I love that we just sang about that, the cost. There's an image that you saw last week. I want to show, uh, want to show it to you again. It's this image of the Sanhedrin. This diagram helps because I think that it helps to sort of put a, a picture in our minds of the situation in this passage. So Peter and John are the ones that are sort of standing in the middle of that room. And I go, this is just an artist's depiction, but you can kind of use your imagination. Uh, the guys standing around are like, it's, it's the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish Supreme Court, and there's 70 of them. The 71st guy would be the high priest. And we've talked about that a bit in, in the prior weeks, so I'm not going to go a lot into that. But I just want you to see that the situation is that Peter and John are, are on a trial by some guys that are a lot smarter than them, that know their Bibles a lot better than them, and yet Peter and John are sounding like the only sane ones in the room. And the rest of the guys are really angry and perplexed and, and confused about what's happening. And so now they're questioning them. Again, we've seen their reply to that question, and now we're going to see a little bit more about the story. Also, as we look at these next verses, I want you to picture the man that's been healed in that room with them. Because that's sort of, uh, it's kind of like the witness taking the stand. There's someone in the room with them, and it's this man. And by the way, he's standing up. <laughs> he's standing up. And everybody knows that this guy don't stand up. And he's standing up. Look at verse 14. It goes on and says, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them. Wow. I mean, what a verse. They had nothing to say in opposition. Nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, so they said, you guys get out of here and let us talk about it. They conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? I'm going to pause there for just a second. Here's the thing. It says that they had nothing to say in opposition. What could they say? What could they say? 
I don't believe this. He's not really. What? He's standing there. What could they say? They disagree in the power and the name. I mean, they said it was in the power in that name. A guy that they know can't walk is clearly able to do so. I'm going to reread verse 15 and 16. When they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed. Listen, for a notable sign, for that a notable sign has been performed through them, through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Not just an evidence to them. It's saying, everybody knows this guy. He's always sitting there at the beautiful gate in the temple, going back to the beginning of chapter 3. Everybody knows this guy. They know he can't walk. And now, this guy is walking. He's been out there sitting at that gate for 40 years, and now he's standing in this room. You see, they cannot deny the reality of the sign itself. Literally, it is undeniable. Not only was it clear to them, but it would be clear to all the city, the entire city of Jerusalem. This is probably one of the most ironic verses in the Bible because what's happening is that the Sanhedrin admits that a notable sign has been done. It's noteworthy. It's clear. They're admitting that. But instead of seeing it for all that it was, they try to suppress it. You see, what happens, the problem is, once again, go back to that complex situation, is that if they admit the power of Jesus behind it, then they lose their power. If they admit, then they lose. Look at verses 17 through 22 and read the rest of it. But in order that it may spread no further, which again is just laughable because we know the ending of the story. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them in and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. I wish I could have been there for that one. Can you imagine? Don't you do it again. Like, okay. I don't know. It's like, it's kind of how I feel when I rebuke my toddler. Don't you do that. Okay. Verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Notice, look, this is their authority, but they also have a greater authority. They, they understand that this is their authority, but they have a greater authority, and they have to honor the greater, not the lesser. I'm going to read that again. Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let him go, finding no way to punish them. They didn't do anything wrong because of the people. Notice because of the people, the pressure there. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. You see, they could not deny that Jesus performed miracles in his lifetime. There are witnesses to those miracles. They could not deny the resurrection because they could not produce a body. They could not deny that Peter and John healed a man in Jesus' name because everyone knew this guy couldn't walk for 40 years, and their sermon made it clear the power from which they were able to grant this healing. And yet still, the Sanhedrin's first instinct isn't to stop and listen, but to keep the people from hearing. Why? Because of the same thing that they previously conferred concerning Jesus. In John eleven forty eight, 48, it says, If we, this is the Sanhedrin conferring about Jesus, who was out on the loose. If we let him go on like this, listen, everyone would believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Do you hear the pride in that? If he keeps going and doing his thing, then we're going to lose all the things that belong to us. The background here is that Rome had influence over who was the high priest and who was in any position of authority. 
Rome controlled business. It controlled commerce. The Sanhedrin got rich because Rome was creating financial opportunities for them. And so they know that if rebellion occurred, then their power, their authority, their influence, and their money and their status would all be gone. By the way, just a few years later, four decades later in AD 70, it happened. The temple was destroyed by Rome, and these guys were out of a job and out of authority and out of a position. They were right to be concerned about this. You see, they didn't care if the message was true. It just could not become popular. And the reason why is literally said right there in verse 17. It says, in order that it may spread no further. This is what they were concerned about. The irony is palpable, right? Their efforts to silence the gospel only serve to spread the gospel. In fact, we're going to see this later on in the book of Acts. They will literally throw them in jail, and the people in jail will be converted. <laughs> Their very efforts to silence the gospel only serve to spread the gospel, which is ironic. In 2003, there was a photograph, um, or a, a photographer took aerial photos of the Californian coastline. Uh, it was part of a 12,000-picture collection for the Californian Coastline Records Project. The effort of that project, the goal, was to influence government officials to combat coastline erosion. And so this photographer went and took all these aerial, 12,000 aerial photos all up and down the coastline of California to say his whole goal was, well, let's go and stop this uh, erosion. And so among those thousands and thousands and thousands of photos, there was one image that showed a clear shot of a mansion that was owned by Barbara Streisand. If you don't know who Barbara Streisand is, uh, you're probably really young and that's okay, but you can Google it later. She's a big famous celebrity. And Barbara Streisand was not happy that one of those thousands of photos captured her mansion and not wanting anyone to see it and having the means to do so, she ordered her lawyers to take action. So they immediately filed a $50 million, five zero by the way, $50 million lawsuit. Before that lawsuit, that photo, again, the aerial shot of her mansion, go ahead and put that mansion image up there. I know, really revealing, right? Man. Obviously, it's not, but she was really worked up about this. Before the lawsuit, this photo, which is barely more descriptive than like Google Images satellite view, by the way, <laughs> this photo before the lawsuit had only been downloaded six times. Uh, before, uh, again, what happens next, uh, two of those times were by her lawyers. So only four times someone other than her lawyers had viewed this uh, photo. When the media took hold of the story after her big fuss over it, uh, the site's traffic skyrocketed to 420,000 visits in the next month. The photo found its way all over the internet. On top of that, the lawsuit was dismissed by the Los Angeles Superior Court, which also ordered her to pay the owner of the website more than $150,000 for legal fees and court costs. It was two years later that the term the Streisand effect was coined, <laughs> describing attempts to silence something only serving to spread it. How about that? You can take that down, thanks. But I want you to hear me say something. The Streisand effect was not the reason that the gospel swelled forward. It wasn't the power of popular opinion. The power of God cannot be silenced by the pride of men. The power of God cannot be silenced by the pride of men. It cannot be silenced by the effort of men. And there are many people in our culture who really wish this thing would be brought to an end. And their power is nothing compared to the hands of our God. Guys, the greatest possible threat that the Sanhedrin could conceive was to threaten the lives of Peter and John. That's what they do. They threaten them. 
you better not, because if you do, you're dead. The very most they could do was to threaten them. And that only excited their resolve, and it highlighted their message. What Peter and John said is, there is nothing here that is greater than the place and person who awaits us. What are you going to do, kill us? Guys, that truth has not changed. There is nothing here for you that is greater than the person and place who awaits us. What are we to do in this world in light of what our God has done in us? We boldly say what you see in verses 19 and 20. I'm going to reread them. We boldly say with Peter and John, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. The apostles turned the question on the men and asked them if they should obey men rather than God. It's respectful disobedience of authority. You see, the authority's actions, the leader's actions were controlled by what people may think or say or do. But the apostles' actions were controlled by what God would have them do. The world would try to suppress. Yours will too. Guys, the, the world may try to suppress our passion, our energy, our affection for our God. They may be upset about the message. It may go against the values and the messaging of our culture, and it will. But we must boldly and confidently say, if I have to choose between honoring God or honoring man, you're just going to have to live with that easy decision. Amen? That's who we are. And guys, that reality is being revealed more and more and more and more. And the outcome is, are we going to praise God or are we going to cower to men? The world says sexuality looks this way. What are we going to say? If I got to choose between what you say and what God says, that's an easy answer for me. And we could fill in the blank with so many things. The world says your weekends should look this way. Look, so if it's between God and man, I've got to go with what God would have me do. You should parent this way. Well, if it's between parenting the way that you say and the way that parenting God says, that's a pretty easy decision for me. And the fact of the matter is it will make you an enemy of man. But we must boldly say, if I have to choose between honoring God and honoring man, you've got to live with that easy decision. It will make you an enemy of man. And when that happens, but there's so much out there. There's so much out there that is oppositional. There's so much out there that is hard and hardship. You need the church. You need the church. This is the place where we come together and we rally around the flame of the Spirit of God and say, we're not crazy, they're crazy. You need each other. This is why you need to be in Sunday school, because you need to be surrounded by like-minded believers. The times where you face the same direction need to be equal with facing the same, or facing all the forward, and need to be resembled by the time you face one another. You have community with each other and have conversations about real life with each other. We're really trying to ramp up our small groups this semester and this year, hopefully forevermore, because we want our people to not just go out there and be beaten to death by the world. We want you to be prepared for battle because you're surrounded by the same flames together, the heat of God's word. You're going to face opposition out there. Are you going to be prepared for that by the fellowship that you have right here? You need the church. You need the fellowship. By the power of the Holy Spirit, for the apostles, through making themselves available and being willing, being available, being willing, 
bold for the Lord. Peter and John reached the place where Jesus wanted them to be. But I want you to hear me say something. I want you to see where Jesus wanted them to be. You see this, right? They didn't have six figures. They didn't have an easy life. Where Jesus wanted them to be was literally standing in the middle of a circle of people that didn't like him. But that's where Jesus wanted them to be. It led to scary, unpredictable, less than ideal circumstances. But it's exactly there that God was ready to work in them and through them. They were available. They were willing. You can't just be this. Are you ready for God to fill you and do something in you and through you? You see, God may have you in an unpredictable, scary, testing place. And this may be hard to hear, but have you considered that it's exactly where God would want you to be? Because it was through the thread of their lives that Peter and John saw the church swell from 3,000 to 5,000. What could God do in and through you in the trial that you're undergoing right now? You're not there by mistake. You're there because that's exactly where God would have you. Because it's there that God is ready to work. But are you available? Are you willing? And God may just be making you uncomfortable lately. You may be in this room today and feeling uncomfortable because you have this uneasy feeling that eternity is a long time and that you don't have the peace in your heart of saying, if I were to go and be in a car accident or have a heart attack now, I don't have peace about where I would spend eternity. You see, unlike the Sadducees, you get to understand that this life is not all there is. All that money in the bank account, it'll stay there. That position at work, they'll fill it. Everyone's replaceable. There's more to life than this life. And perhaps God is having you here today, making you uncomfortable, because you're having to wrestle with the reality that God wants to do something in you. But you know what you got to do? You got to be available. You got to be willing. You know, you have a sin problem, but God has brought a powerful solution to the person and work of Jesus. He has bore on himself the curse of sin and death. That anybody who believes and trusts in him and surrenders and steps out of faith, steps out in faith to him, will be saved. And if that's you today, and God is making you uncomfortable, I just want you to know that may just be a gift. That uncomfortability may be a gift. And perhaps it's time for you to step out from under the umbrella so God can rain on you.